folks. Welcome back to the Field and Garden Podcast. It's your friend, Lisa Mason Ziegler, and thanks so much for joining me here today. So friends, I had another great discussion with Jonathan Lease of Springforth Farm. Jonathan and I, and along with his wife, Megan, met years ago um, we really made a great connection when we um, I attended the 30th year anniversary conference of the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. It was held in Raleigh, and Megan and Jonathan's farm was on the farm tours there. And friends, when I when the bus pulled up to their farm, you know how you're kind of high up in a bus and you have a really great eye view. I thought. This is going to be an awesome tour. I mean, just first off, they, like me, have small space. They don't have like acres and acres um, planted as so many growers do. You know, sometimes we can feel a little distant from those kinds of situations. And their farm was neat. And I just, I had an instant gut feeling that this was going to be a great tour, and it was. And what I learned about Jonathan and Megan that day is that they're very focused and very structured in the way that they do business. And part of that led them to actually evolve their business into a very early spring to early summer harvesting selling season. And they did that because they are one they their i guess their goal from the beginning was to be homesteaders and they you know wanted flowers to be a profitable business to help them make that dream come true so flowers um didn't need to take over their life which they'll he'll tell you when you take a listen here that they did for a little while but they came back around to their original goal anyway They focus on selling their flowers to florists and designers, and they do it in very early spring um, to very early summer when it is the highest demand. And one of, um, when I first talked to him about doing this, I said, let's talk about the white flowers that you grow. Because I can remember him saying to me, oh my gosh, we're growing every white flower that we can find that'll bloom during that period. But as we had the discussion earlier today, I realized that he did go through a phase where they were growing too much, maybe, of white, but how that they've kind of tweaked that into really growing what is needed for their customers. So that's what I um, am naming today's episode. It's about, you know, what is your market? The colors are based on that, and that's what Jonathan and I um, talk about here. So let's just take a listen and hear what Jonathan and I explored this morning. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me here today for another. um, You've been on here on the show several times. Thanks for coming back for another episode. Yeah, well, it's always so fun to talk to you about flowers and growing in our business, so Uh, Thank you for inviting us back. You know, I almost feel like our chat before we actually go live, we should have all those recordings to put together for a for a podcast because it is it's really fun to catch up. Y'all are a, a young family, a young business, meaning less than 10 or 12 years old. I think how how long have you been in business? 
Uh, this is our eighth season. Okay. So it's just ever changing and ever evolving. And it's really, really exciting for me. So Jonathan, for those, our listeners that may not be familiar with you and Megan and Springforth Farm and, you know, people that haven't taken your no-till course with us about micro flower farming, um, share with us before we dive into white flowers, what your business model is um, and how we kind of came down to you growing lots of white flowers. So um, our business model is selling wholesale to florists. And um, we sell from whenever we have enough products to sell in the spring. Um, last year, that was Valentine's Day. Uh, I know your listeners are all over the country, but for those in the Southeast, they'll know that this February is really, this January has been really cold. So I don't think we're gonna have flowers for Valentine's Day this year. Um, but the anemones are always the first thing to bloom. And then, we have a hard cutoff date um, that we set. Uh, we've set it in the past at the end of June. Um, this year, we've actually moved it up a little bit to the um, end of May. And we sort of reevaluate what that date should be every year when we're doing our crop planning. But we realized with the girls, um, we don't make that much money in June. It's just, it's not as profitable as any of the other times of the year because we're in our area, um, the weddings really sort of drop off the second week of June. Um, and a lot of the flowers that start blooming in June bloom through the end of June. So it's like we can sell them for the beginning of their blooming cycle and not the end of the blooming cycle. Um, and just, we wanted to have a little bit more time to clean the farm up before our summer break, which is the whole point of, um, the way we have our business organized is that we have some time for our family uh, and, and things like that. And we're selling during this very high demand time for the florists in the spring. One reason that works for us, and I, you know, I know we'll talk about this, we're growing on a very, very small space. Um, I think we're growing in, growing flowers on maybe around 6,000 to 7,000 square feet. And so in order to make the most profit from that, we wanna sell those flowers at the most profitable time of year, which is spring. And when we were trying to sell later in the year, we couldn't plant as many spring flowers. So we just plant all of it into cool flowers um, and we sell them all in the spring and then we get a break and that's making the most amount of profit from our land to do it that way, rather than growing some um, lower value crops that would be blooming in the summer when there's not as much demand in our area. So, you know, we skipped kind of right over. Um, I mentioned your young family, but we have two little girls that are a part of this operation, Julianne and Willa. And um, so they're kind of the driving force behind this model that you guys have evolved from. Cause I know it didn't used to be this way for you guys, but you wanted to have family time, family vacation. You guys grow a lot of vegetables, put up a lot of food, and you knew you couldn't do it all, or at least do it all well and survive, right? No, no, we, we, you really can't. So we have our, um, we really talk about this in our, in the no-till microscale flower farm, but we really 
believe that you should start by setting goals. So our goal was to have a homestead and then a flower business that supported that. This was even before we had the girls. Um, and the flowers were so successful, we got a little bit wrapped up in it like people can, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. We were selling all the whole year and we weren't having time to focus on the homestead. Well, that was before we had children. Now we have a 16 month old and a three-year-old. And um, it's not that the flower business is less important, I guess I would say like, we just added on to our identity. Like now we have our, also our identity as parents and, and, you know, we're just trying to remember our original goal was to have a, a, a business that supported all our other goals, not the other way around. Um, and, you know, we want to have time for the girls to help with the flowers and to help grow the vegetables. So uh, that's why we do this spring business because it's the most efficient use of our land and our time. And, you know, I was just, I'm a little behind on my podcast. So I was just listening to your one about overspending um, and talking about how the point of the business is to have a profit. So for us, we have a goal for what our profit should be. We don't need to make more than that. Um, but we also have a goal to make that profit as efficiently as possible in terms of our time and stress and land usage. And so that's why we have this, um, this model because that gets us there and checks off those boxes. But we reevaluate it every year. We reevaluate our selling season. We reevaluate um, our customers. Each customer, is this person still worth selling to? Uh, sometimes the answer is no. Right. Um, you know, and uh, I heard at one, at one uh, ASCFG conference, I think I heard someone describe that as like breaking up with a customer. And sometimes you need to do that. Um, and then we also reevaluate our crops, every flower. Did we plant it at the right time? Did we plant enough of it? Did we plant too much of it? Um, what's the demand for it? Uh, sometimes we break up with crops too. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? But you know, I think flower business is different than any other business that I have ever learned about, seen, been a part of. Flowers are so intoxicating because of the end result of them, whether it's the beauty or, you know, how you feel when you deliver them to people, it is so easy to fall under not following what you're talking about. And that's how we end up not making a profit. And in the beginning, people say, oh, but I love the, I do it for the flowers. It's like, that won't last very long, right? Well, the thing is like, I do it for the flowers too, but you can't be sentimental about any individual flower I think right. and, you know or any individual customer like it it's just important to keep your eye on the goal if, if I wasn't doing it for the flowers then I, I don't know I'd be growing mushrooms or I'd be growing vegetables or something but so I love the flowers but that doesn't mean I want to end up with an extra hundred bunches of something a week <laughs> in my cooler or in my house like I love having flowers in the house but I don't want a hundred bunches reminding me that I didn't sell sell them it's true. It's so true, right? <laughs> yeah. So one of the things, um, I know this is something you mentioned you wanted to talk about, is just how our crop mix, our colors and the flowers that we grow evolve out of, out of our market focus. You know, I think we grow a different color palette than other farmers might grow just based on who we're selling to. Yes. And so tell us, 
how I know that several years ago, I can remember us having a discussion and you were sharing with me that you were growing every white flower, cool flower that would fit into that bloom time that you have developed. Um, And it really opened my eyes. I thought, I never really thought about it like that way. You know, I'm, you know, I'm so guilty of falling into the forest and not seeing the trees. (laughs) So share with us kind of how I think that that helped me um, because I thought I'm kind of selling to the same people he is, you know, tons of florists. He's right. White is significant and always in demand. So kind of tell us how that all evolved. Well, in short, just I think for anybody, the main takeaway is the, the colors and flowers that are in demand are going to depend on who your customers are and what time of year it is. So for, for new flower farmers, I think that's one of the hardest things to learn because we want to grow every pretty flower. But for example, like the red rudbeckias that bloom, they're so pretty, but they, they just want to bloom in, in the, the wrong time of year. Yep. Um, and same, I think the same thing with like, there are lots of beautiful red sunflowers, but maybe you don't want to plant them at the beginning of the sunflower season. Um, so for us in the spring, our florists are really doing a lot of weddings and events, really a lot of weddings. And so we want to be growing the spring wedding colors and we're not very trend conscious people. So um, I, I, there's definitely a place for, for the farmers who know what flowers, what colors are hot in the fashion world and are going to trickle down to their market. And we're just, we're, we're not able to do that. So we're looking at the colors that are always going to be in demand. Um, and so that is white. And then in, in our time of year, you know, a lot of peach, blush, pink. And then we try to... Uh, jewel tones, which we don't, so one person's jewel tone is another person's, you know, some, some oversaturated flower. So we don't know exactly what that means to each person, but we try to grow a few bright colors, you know, rich saturated colors for the florists who need that for their weddings. Um, But it is true. Almost every flower, if there's a white variety, we are growing some of that. And we have made the mistake of growing too much white. Um, You know, I think we had one year when we had like two or three white snapdragons and a couple different white ranunculus blooming at the same time as each other. And and that was too much. That was a little bit of a hard lesson to learn. Um, So now we just try to space it out and make sure we have the white, right amount of everything that's white, but, but pretty much everything we grow, if there's white, we grow that and then some other colors. So as your farm, you know, I've watched your farm grow from um, that initial greenhouse that you guys got. You went from a field grower to adding that one automated house after much consideration. And I know now you've added more tunnels, unheated hoop houses. Um, So first, so I I want us just to talk a little bit about what were the white flowers that you grew. Um, Let's start back when you were mostly field growing, um, what you grew and any lessons that you learned that can be helpful to folks. 
Yeah. So when we, when we were field growing, we were not as focused on early spring because we need the tunnels in order to um, get those early spring flowers. So the tunnels were actually what made this model possible. So we weren't as focused on white flowers when we were field growing, we were growing more in the summer. Um, but some of the white flowers that we did grow at that time were, were peonies. Um, you know, I think anyone who, any flower farmer who owns land and has the space for it should plant peonies, even if they don't plant any other perennials. Um, right. And so uh, white peonies were definitely um, a good crop. Um, I'm not gonna share the varieties. I think the variety is really specific to your area, how much cold it needs and things like that. But you know, your bulb supplier can help you find which white peony would be right for you. Right. Um, outside of that, I mean, we grew, um, you know, uh, Queen Anne's Lace, Ami, Orlia, those both did pretty well. Um, sometimes the field Orlia wouldn't be quite tall enough for us. Um, and we, now it doesn't bloom at the same time, but Ami Visnaga, the green mist yeah. flower, it's not white, white, but it's sort of a creamy green color that I think would sort of fit in that same category. And it's yes. very, very tall. Um, so that was a, that was always a good option. Um, one that was hard for us to grow, well, two that were hard for us to grow in the field were um, white Lysianthus and white Campanula. Um, and those are both phenomenal crops we're a little, a, a little bit misgrowing Lysianthus now because it doesn't fit into our crop time. Um, but you know, Lysianthus is a phenomenal flower that everyone should look into, do their research about, and then you know, grow if it makes sense for them. Um, unfortunately for us, we had some, you know, we have very heavy rain and that just damaged the Lysianthus flowers in the field. Um, so that was hard for us. So and did you ever grow Saponaria outside? We do grow saponaria. Uh, that, I'll, I'll come back to that one in a second because I just want to share the other one we had a challenge with was Campanula because the flowers point up and they would fill with water. Um, and I, I don't know if other people have found solutions to that. We, we never did. So the, the flowers would fill with water and the white flowers would just, they would turn brown. Um, yeah. So those were hard. The, some of the ones that really were really successful in the field, well, um, saponaria, the one you just mentioned, is our pretty much all-time favorite filler. Um, it is, has a lot of movement, it has a lot of volume, um, it germinates well. Um, so if anyone hasn't grown that, it, it only comes in white and pink, and both colors are phenomenal. Yes, I um, agree. Yeah, uh, just a, a few tips I would say is you have to net it. Um, you just, you have to net it. It's hard to harvest through the netting, but if you don't net it, you're not gonna have a crop. Um, right. We've had some difficulty planting it in the fall and having it survive the winter without getting diseases or getting too tall and then getting knocked down. Um, so our spring crop is always really, really good. And the fall crop is a little hit or miss. I, have you grown it in the fall? That's the only way that I've grown it. So I didn't even realize, do you direct seed it in very early spring? We do, we direct seed it. We direct seed it in late January or early February. Which outside? Is absolutely, 
outside, which is actually when we direct seed most of our outside crops, if the seeds aren't particularly prone to rotting, we just figure they're gonna, they're gonna stay moist and they're gonna germinate when the temperature's right okay. for them. And we've had pretty good luck with that. Um, so it's good, good to hear that you're having success with it in the fall. Yeah, and I mean, it was really big going into this particular winter. And as I shared earlier before we went live, I mean, we've had um, low teens and it was not covered because we also had snow at the same time. So we'll see how it survives. The verdict is still out. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that that, of course, every year might throw a curveball at you. Uh, the very first year we grew saponaria, we tried to transplant it and we had difficulty getting it to Germany. However, the ones that we did transplant all survived. They grew great. And um, because we had trouble germinating it, we reseeded it. So I think we did maybe some we seeded in September and some we seeded in November and they bloomed at different times. So I think uh -huh. if someone could figure out how to get it to germinate direct uh, um, transplanting, you could do some successions of it. Yeah. And the big drawback, the only drawback to saponaria is it all blooms at once. Yeah. Um, so having successions would um, be a dream. Be, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I will say if you pick it when only a few flowers are open on the stem, it does store very well. Yes. So um, if, if you could store it in the cooler um, for a little while and sort of spread your crop out that way. But I think we pick our entire crop in about three days. Huh? Yeah, no, I think I did was able to spread mine out a little bit, but you're right. Cutting it. You know, I just really love that whole part of this business of learning the very earliest you can pick a crop so that you can stretch out these flash crops, you know, sit yeah. on a little bit of it. So at least to have it for two or three weeks to add to bouquets or, um, but that's the art, that's the science of all of this and the yeah. art of skill. And, and another thing that would be different year to year, like maybe, maybe when we picked it all in three, three days, it, it was a warm spell. And if it had stayed right. cool and cloudy, it would have, it would have been right. spread out. Okay. So um, that's good. Those are our, or the other crop I would say um, we didn't have success with in the field, but I would go back and do it again now is white dianthus. And mm -hmm. the reason that we didn't have a lot of success with it is we were growing the sweet series, which at the time was the only solid color white that I could find. Right. Um, and unfortunately, the sweet white is just inherently short. Yes. Um, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I thought it was me. Yeah, no, it's just always that way. But since then, um, there's a new series called Bodestaltz that also has a white, a straight white. And um, we haven't grown the straight white Bodestaltz. We grew a mix of it last year just to test out, see the different colors and stuff. But it is much, much taller than the sweets. So we're going we're gonna to try growing the straight white of that and to see if it's tall enough. Um, so I just want to add here for our listeners um, I am going to put in the show notes a list of what Jonathan is telling me, and he'll hopefully send me the spelling of that series. I, I, yeah, so, I sure will. Is um, that is that a, is it like sweet in Amazon where it's from seed to bloom in a fairly short time, 16 weeks or something, or no vernalization needed? Uh, no, vernal, no, it doesn't need to vernalize. Um, okay. 
Okay. We planted it. We only planted it in the fall. So it, I couldn't tell you if you planted it in the spring, right. what the bloom time would be. Um, it, it was one of the first to bloom. So I'm, I think it would awesome. be pretty fast. And I'll send, I'll send you that. Okay, um, great. Yeah. Other things we've had trouble with in the field, but have been much more successful um, growing in, in the tunnels. Okay. So um, I, I would say, so we have, I'll just uh, share, we have one 30 by 96 foot unheated, but automated tunnel. So the ventilation is automated, but the tunnel is not heated. Okay. We also have three 16 by 80 foot caterpillar tunnels that we got from Farmer's Friend. And one um, just tip that I would say to all of, all of the listeners is we were able to use an NRCS grant to pay for all three of those tunnels. Um, even though they, the area that we um, built out is more than the grant covers because the tunnels are so cheap and the grant pays you based on, a, the cost share pays you based on a square footage, we could build out more area and still wow. have it completely covered by the, by the grant. So um, that particular tunnel may or may not be covered in every state. You need to talk to your NRCS agent about that. Um, but anyone that owns land and is interested in building out some tunnels, you know, um, that's a great place to start just because they're so affordable. The big tunnel, however, is really, really nice and offers other advantages. You know, it just costs more. Um, the best thing for us about growing in tunnels was being able to grow anemones and ranunculus. Um, growing in the very early spring, four florists, four events, it just made a huge difference to have those particular flowers. Um, I have seen, and you know, for people like in your situation that can't build a tunnel like that, um, I have seen people grow them in very small caterpillar tunnels, like mm -hmm. that cover one bed, temporary caterpillar tunnels with plastic covering. Um, I think you'd have to be very aggressive on ventilating that tiny space. But I mean, I think I've seen pictures maybe of Jenny Love doing it. I know yeah. Tony and Denise Gates at Bear Mountain Farm have plans for how to build that caterpillar tunnel. I think they're the ones that sort of invented it. So um, I would encourage experienced growers who don't have a larger tunnel that want to try this, I would encourage you to try it. Um, but I think it, I think don't invest in anemone and ranunculus corms, you know, if you're just out of the gate. Um, right. That's, there is, that's a lot of tools that you're going to need in your tool bag to be able to do that. And I think new growers, I'm saying this for new growers that are thinking, Oh, maybe I'll try that. You just can't wrap your head around how much you're going to have to learn and do in the flower farming business. And to have that on top of it, it's just a lot. And it's kind of setting the path to fail easier. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I totally agree. Yeah, um, but those are our most profitable crops, especially anemones, white anemones with the black center. We can never grow enough. They produce like crazy how many flowers, you know, out of a tiny space, how many stems each plant produces. Really? So, yeah. So white anemones are by far the most profitable crop that we grow. Um, our only limit is, you know, we can't only grow those or we wouldn't be able to sell them all, but yeah. that would, that would be, that would be the, the, the path to riches. Um, stock and Godesia both are just killer in the tunnel for us. 
much more so than in the field. Um, you know, some crops are really sensitive to daylight. Uh, it seems to us like Godesia is one of those crops that really responds to the day length in terms of when it blooms. So growing it in the tunnel just lets it get that much taller before it gets to wow. the day length. Um, you know, so we're able to get 24 to 30 inch stems of Godesia in the tunnel and we were never able to do that uh, in the field. Um, and everything else, Larkspur is also a lot better for us in the tunnel. Um, in the field, I don't know if you experienced this, but we have clay soil and it would get a lot of crown rot. Yeah. Um, and so we just have a lot less of that in the tunnel, I think because the soil's drier, the soil dries out right. faster. Um, and then of course we don't have the issue with the Campanula bells filling up with, with water. So what about your snaps? So you grow pretty much grow, exclusively in tunnels? We grow the, yes. Um, and the reason is just, they're so much taller. Um, we were never able to, we were able to get the height we wanted on snaps with certain varieties in the field, um, really like the group four varieties, but not with all of them. And in the tunnel, we can get just from our first snaps to our last snaps, you know, they're all four feet tall. Um, and so that's wow. really what we're looking for. So I, I, I will say with snapdragons, for anyone who, who um, doesn't grow them, we only plant them in the fall and we extend our snapdragon season by planting different varieties. So if you look in the seed catalog, it will say like group one, two, group three, four, whatever. So, um, but we especially love the Chantilly whites. I'm sorry, everyone who heard that. We have a few dogs around. One of them is just huffing and puffing over here. The Chantilly whites, the um, Madam Butterfly ivory. Yes. Yeah, those are, those are both really wonderful. And by the time the Madam Butterfly is done blooming, then there's not quite for us quite as much demand for white flowers. So we don't plant any whites in the later series of uh, okay. snapdragons. Yeah. And also a stock, I, I, I would say, sorry to interrupt. That's all right. White, white stock is available in high double. The high doubles are only that I only really in white and yellow. So like it's, we love growing other color stocks, but we have a bunch of singles. Well, the cheerful, noble, and there's several other high double series of stock um, that, ev that everyone who grows stock should plant. And you should plant a variety of the high double white series because they bloom at different times. So we just plant all our stock at the same time, but by planting different series, we extend our, our harvest window. So you're saying like, for instance, cats, high white double blooms at a different time than just the white. Um, cats high white double blooms at a different time than cheerful, which is all, all high double. Right. At a different time than cheerful mid-season, which is all high double, blooms at a different time than noble, which is all high double. And so awesome. by um, some of those might overlap. Um, so we, we don't grow all of those. Um, but just if you if you grow more than one kind, you can spread your harvest out. Right. Because stock for anyone that doesn't hasn't grown it before, stock is one and done. I mean, they're like single stem sunflowers, basically. Right. Well, Jonathan, this has really been, I think, an eye opener. I'm really excited about the dianthus that you mentioned, that I'm going to try that. 
Um, and I also think that it gives hope to people that perhaps are kind of in the beginning journey of their flower farming and they're, they don't have any structures yet because they're trying to learn how to flower farm before they take that plunge, which is highly recommended by Absolutely. both of us, I believe. Absolutely. And just, you know, you don't know where your business will take you and you don't have to have structures. Right. We wanted structures because it allowed us to get into this early spring, which is what that was our goal. Um, but, you know, if you're not trying to have flowers in March, then, then you don't need the, you don't need the tunnels and you'll, you know, you'll just have that much less overhead and you'll just have a different and hopefully wonderful business, you know? I think there are as many different business models as there are people. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I mean, right. I mean, it's like, yes, we could have a whole conversation about that. So folks, we'll put in the show notes, um, the lists of flowers that Jonathan mentioned and, specifically that dianthus variety. And um, thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining me again here today and just sharing your experience. That's what helps people the most, I think. Yeah, thank you for inviting me back. It's been a pleasure to talk. So I hope that there's several things that maybe you might take away from this discussion. First off is that they're only growing in six to 7,000 square feet. That is a small space and they are producing a lot and how having a goal and not falling victim to the intoxication of growing every flower on the planet um, has benefits. And their benefit is, is that they close down their operation pretty much for harvesting and selling as the summer comes on so that they can address other wants and needs of their family. And um, so if you want to learn more about Jonathan and Megan and the way that they farm and how their whole system works, they have done an amazing on-demand course with us, and it's called the Microscale, I'm sorry, the No-Till Microscale Flower Farm. I think it's a little more than four hours, broken up into a bunch of sessions, and um, it's just got a lot of really great information, including a session on, I forget what the exact name is, but it's basically how to stay married after dealing with infuriating um, farm tools such as tarps and row covers from folding them up, putting them away, how to store them. Um, anyway, it's just got a lot of great information. So Jonathan and Megan um, and their little family is a up-and-coming business model that I think more of us can just learn from. And I am putting down in the show notes um, the list of the white flowers that we talked about or the flowers that they also come in other colors. And um, friends, if you want to learn more about the Gardener's Workshop or their course, which I will put a link to both below, um, you'll find us over at thegardenersworkshop.com. We are an online learning center, which includes lots of free resources and a lot of um, paid online courses if you want more focused, um, organized information. And of course, our online garden store. All right, friends, until we meet again, ciao.